0: Good evening everyone. This is the new Comfort in Death and Darkness. It's been over a year since the last episode and in that time, I've had a lot of change happen in my life. Pandemic, work, new opportunities, pretty much everything. But I've always wanted to come back to Comfort in Death and Darkness and, well, here we are. This isn't going to be a podcast like before. This is going to be more fact-based, and more research-based, rather than discussion-based. Each episode, you'll hear from me, something juicy from around the world, and a guest. Usually, one of my best friends. The suspension of disbelief is still encouraged within the walls of the CIDAD house. Are we talking ghosts? Demons? Spirits? Then, for the duration of that podcast, The Real. Just like murderers and other twisted people, everything is fair game. So, sit back, relax, maybe turn out the lights, and get ready. This is the new Comfort in Death and Darkness. to you and myself, and the other will be from a voice that is familiar to all of the original fans of the show. Story number two will be narrated by Charlie, my fiance. But before we get to Charlie, let's focus our attention somewhere and somewhere else. During my time away from the podcast, I dipped my toes into the world of streaming. Currently, I'm standing at around 1900 followers. One of the games that got my foot in the door of Twitch streaming was Jackbox Games. Now, I don't play these sets of mini games anymore. However, there was always something from one of those mini games that stuck in my mind for a long time now. In the game Fippage 3, you are given a sentence and in that sentence, a word will be missed out. You need to fill in the blank, but so do the other players that are playing. Your aim isn't to type in the correct answer though. You need to type in a convincing lie and then attempt to pick the correct answer from within a sea of incorrect answers. There was a question in this game that asked about the Greenbrier ghost. The question is something along the lines of, this ghost being the only ghost in history to blank. Well. Imagine my fascination when I discovered that the answer to this question is that the ghost solved its own murder. And thus brings us to today's first story. This is the story of the Green Briar ghost. Sometime around eighteen seventy three, A woman named Elva Zona Heaster was born in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, United States. Not much is known about her from her early years, but what is known is that she was brought up close to a place called Richlands, and that she actually gave birth out of wedlock in 1885. In the October of 1896, Zona met a drifter that went by the incredible name of Erasmus Stribbling Trout Shoe. This man had just moved to Greenbrier County in search of a new life and was looking to work as a blacksmith. The pair soon after fell in love and married. Zona's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, was strongly opposed to their union though, mostly due to her dislike of Shoe. Their marriage was a peaceful one. That is, until January 23rd, 1897, which was when Zona's body was found at her home by an errand boy. He had been sent to the house on an errand by Shu. This poor boy found the lifeless body of Zona lying at the bottom of the stairs. She was stretched out with her feet together and one of her hands lying on her stomach. The errand boy didn't go back to Shu, though. He ran home and alerted his mother. The reason that he ran home was because, well, this boy was African-American and, as you can imagine, people would probably point the finger at him. At least that's what he thought. His mother, though, summoned the local doctor and coroner, George W. Knapp, to the home of Zona. It took Knapp an hour to get there. In the time it took for the doctor to arrive, Shu had already arrived home and actually had picked his wife up off the floor and took her upstairs and had laid her down on their bed. Weirdly, he dressed the corpse of his wife himself, which was odd because usually the women of the community would traditionally take on the task of washing and prepping the body for burial. For some reason, Shu did this himself before the doctor had even arrived. He had dressed her in a high necked dress with a stiff collar with a veil over her head. Dr. Knapp examined Zona's body with Shu remaining at his side the entire examination, cradling her head and sobbing the entire time. Knapp noted the husband's grief and was only going to give a brief examination. That was until he arrived at Zona's neck where he noticed there was some light bruising. When he tried to examine this in further detail, Shu's reaction was so violent that Knapp stopped the examination there and then and left the house. The initial cause of death that had been listed for Zona was that of everlasting faint before it was changed to childbirth. It gets weirder because Nap had actually been treating Zona for something called female trouble, whatever that is, for two weeks prior to her death. If she actually was pregnant or not though is completely unknown. Soon after this, Zona's parents were notified of her death and Mary Jane Heaster is said to have said that, quote, the devil has killed her after hearing the horrible news. Zona was buried the next day on January 24th, 1897 in a local cemetery. Her husband, Shu, showed great devotion to his wife's body, going as far as keeping a vigil at her head of the open casket during the move of the body. The body was even laid out at the Heaster home weird. This behavior though started to arouse some suspicion. He would drift from overwhelming sadness and sorrow to suddenly having an incredible energy about him. He would allow no one to get near the coffin, more so while he was placing a pillow on one side of her head and a rolled-up sheet on the other side. He explained his actions as making his wife's rest easier. He then even tied a rather large scarf around her neck, justifying this by saying tearfully that it had been Zona's favorite. When the time arrived to move the corpse to the cemetery, people started to notice a strange looseness about Zona's head. Mary Jane was utterly convinced that her son-in-law was the cause of her daughter's death. After the wake, she had actually removed the sheet that Shu had placed in the coffin and tried to give it back to him. He refused to take it though. That was when she noticed that there was a peculiar odor emanating from the sheet. Mary decided to wash it, and the basin full of water turned red after she dropped the sheet into it. I'm not sure entirely if the water turned red or if the sheet turned pink and the water cleared. There is differing schools of thought on this for some reason. And it's also thought that the stain that may have been on the sheet, well, apparently it couldn't be removed. Mary had took this as a huge sign that Zona had actually been murdered. Mary did the only thing she could think to do. She prayed. She prayed every single night for four weeks in the hopes that Zona would return to her and explain everything that happened on January 23rd, 1897. This is all according to local legend, but it's said that Zona had heard the prayers of her mother and returned to her in a dream four weeks after the funeral. She told her mother that Shu was a cruel man who was abusive and had attacked her in a fit of rage when he thought that she hadn't cooked any meat for dinner. For this, he broke her neck. As proof, the ghost of Zona turned her head around 180 degrees, facing away from Mary. The ghost allegedly appeared at first as a bright light and gradually took on the form of Zona while simultaneously filling the room with a chill. It's also said that Zona visited her mother over the course of four nights. Mary took her story of the haunting to the local prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, and tried to convince him of her story over the course of several hours to reopen the case into Zona's death. Whether he believed her story or not is not known, but It did create enough reasonable doubt in his mind to send out deputies to re-interview several people of interest, including Dr. Knapp. In all honesty, he was most likely just responding to public sentiment, because there were already a few local people suggesting that Zona's death was actually murder. Maybe Mary's story was just the straw that broke the camel's back. We'll never know for sure, but it's cool to think that he was all about the idea that a ghost came back and told someone that they'd been murdered. Prosecutor Preston went to talk to Dr. Matt personally and it was there that he found out that the good doctor was not actually able to carry out a full examination of the body due to the outburst of Shu. For this Preston thought that that was sufficient justification for the exhumation of Zona's body in order to have a full autopsy performed. An inquest jury was also formed On February 22nd, 1897, Zona's body was re-examined in the local one-room schoolhouse. Shu was said to have vigorously complained about the whole thing, but was also required by law to be present for the entire autopsy. So, what do you think his response was? Well, he knew he would be placed under arrest, but that no one would be able to prove that he was guilty of Zona's murder. The autopsy itself took three days to complete and it found that Zona's neck had indeed been broken. A report was published on March 9, 1897 and in it were the following lines. Quote, the discovery was made that the neck was broken and the windpipe mashed. On the throat were the marks of fingers, indication that she had been choked. The neck was dislocated between the first and the second vertebra. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in the front of the neck. So, it goes without saying. Due to the strength of the evidence and the behavior of Shu at the inquest, he was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife, Zona. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of this story, when I told you that he had come to Greenbrier in search of a new life, well, while he was being held in a jail in Lewisburg, A lot of information about Shu's past came to light. Shu had actually been married twice before. His first marriage ended in divorce. Why? Well, it's only because his first wife accused Shu of great cruelty. And what of his second wife? Oh, she died under mysterious circumstances less than a year after they were married. Zona was his third wife, and Shu was just talking shit in jail, saying things like he wished to marry seven women, speaking freely of this ambition. He even told reporters that he was sure he'd be set free, and not go down for the murder because there was just not enough evidence against him. The trial of Erasmus Stribling Trout Shu, yeah you can see why I haven't been saying his full name the entire time, got underway on June 22nd, 1897, with Mary Jane Heaster as Prosecutor Preston's star witness. He strictly kept his questioning to the known facts on the case, completely skirting around the issue of the ghostly sightings. It's thought that in a bid to prove Mary Jane unreliable, she's lawyer questioned her extensively about Zona's ghostly visits, but this entirely backfired because Mary Jane never wavered once on her account, despite constant and intense badgering. Due to the introduction of the ghost sighting into the trial by the defense, the judge found that they could not instruct the jury to disregard the ghost story. But do you know what the bizarre thing is though? Many of the community actually believed it. As a consequence of this, Erasmus Stribbling Trout Shoe was found guilty of murder on July 11th, 1897, and was sentenced to life in prison. The funny thing? Reports show that the Greenbrier ghost was never once mentioned at the trial by the prosecution, and thus never played a part in the case against Shu when it came to the prosecution. Following the sentencing, a lynch mob was formed to pluck Shu right from the jail and hang him publicly. The angry mob didn't get to carry out their own form of vigilante justice, however, because the deputy sheriff disbanded the mob before any damage could be done. Four of the organizers of the lynch mob later on faced charges for their actions. She was then moved to West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville. This would be his home for the next three years. He died on the 13th of March, 1900. He was the victim of an unknown epidemic and was buried in a grave that was left unmarked in the local cemetery. Mary Jane Heaster never ever recounted her story about being visited by the ghost of her daughter and would later pass away in September of 1916. And Zona? Well, her ghost has never been seen in Greenbrier ever again. The state of West Virginia has put up a state historical marker close to the cemetery that holds the body of Zona it reads as follows. Interned in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shu. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparitions account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison. Only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. Now the marker isn't actually accurate, but it goes to show you, just because there's no evidence that ghosts exist, doesn't mean that they definitely don't. And that is the story of the Greenbrier Ghost. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first story of the new Comfort in Death and Darkness, but now it's time for the second story. And the second story, well, it uh, hits quite close to home, for me at least, because, well, I'll let her tell you. My best friend, Charlie.
1: This case is not only a case that I'm incredibly fascinated by, but it's also local to me and Jake. We're now going to take a trip to my neck of the woods, Newcastle upon Tyne. Have you ever heard of a mother giving birth to a child, her only living person that she carries for 9 months, outright rejecting the baby as soon as it's born? Like seriously, according to the sister of this mother, she shouted at nurses who were trying to place her newborn baby in her arms, take that thing away from me. Well. These were the ramblings of 17-year-old Elizabeth McCricket. Elizabeth would eventually become a rather well-known local prostitute, who frequently abandoned her children when travelling to Glasgow for work. She would sometimes leave her children in the care of the father, but whether he remained present or not is another story. Elizabeth then married a man named Billy Bell, a drunkard and a criminal who was always on the wrong side of the law, usually having something to do with armed robbery. These two parental figures seem like the beginnings of a great recipe to create their own little murderer and, funny enough, that's exactly what they did. This is not the story of Betty and Bill Bell, nope. This is the story of their daughter, Mary Bell. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, Mary was a child of neglect, was constantly getting injured in household accidents while alone with her mother. For instance, Betty once dropped Mary out of the first floor window. They were definitely a candidate for mother of the year award that year. On another occasion, she intentionally dosed her own child with sleeping pills. But the tip of the fucking iceberg was the occasion that Betty met a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have children of her own and wasn't allowed to officially adopt a child due to her imminent immigration to Australia and sold Mary to this woman. Like, What the actual hell? Mary's aunt and Betty's older sister Catherine took it upon themselves to travel across Newcastle to take Mary back home where she belonged. And despite all of this, even after selling her own daughter, Betty outright refused repeated offers from family members to take custody of Mary. So, she's okay selling her to a completely unstable stranger, but not just handing her off to another member of the family. Yeah, this isn't sus at all. Mary also witnessed the death of her best friend, a five-year-old who was hit by a bus, possibly leading to her ability to bond with others being hindered. I mean, come on. Witnessing someone being killed by a bus would be enough to screw the mind of anyone of any age, never mind a child. Couple this with the home life and well… Knowing all of this, is it any wonder that Mary began to exhibit signs of disturbing behaviour both at home and at school such as frequently getting into fights with both her male and female classmates, going as far as attempting to suffocate some of them. For instance, she is known to have attempted to block off a young girl's trachea, you know, the windpipe, with sand. It is one thing to put your hands around someone's throat, but to start cramming their mouth full of sand to the point where they suffocate on sand is quite possibly the definition of disturbing behavior. As you can imagine, this made children scared of Mary, and they kept pushing it to a distance, leading to even more isolation for Mary and possibly pushing her further into the darkness. One classmate even described Mary's sinister behaviour that she exhibited as something that all her fellow students grew accustomed to. They said that she would suddenly just change, exhibiting mannerisms of a distressful nature such as shaking her head continuously or forming a chilling stare, a stare in which Mary would zero in on one person, who she would then attack. and. As with most stories of this nature, there's a path of escalation and the next level for Mary took the form of a three-year-old boy. Said boy was found dazed and confused, wandering around, obviously lost and bloody. Obviously the police got involved and when they asked the boy what happened, he told them he had been playing with Mary and Norma Bell, who, by the way, are not related to one another, on top of a disused air raid shelter. When one of either Mary or Norma, with him being unsure of which one, pushed him off the shelter, fallen seven feet from the roof down to the ground. He ended up with a pretty nasty cut on his head. On the same day as this, the parents of three little girls also got into contact with the police because they had found out that Mary and Norma had tried to strangle the three girls while they were playing in the sandpit. The police then had to question Mary and Norma, still on the same day, and they outright denied everything to do with the boy, saying that they had just found the boy after he'd fallen from the shelter roof. But... When it came to the strangulation incident, Mary said that she had no idea what the police were even talking about. However, Norma, kinda, sorta, sold her out. Norma admitted to the police that Mary had tried to throttle the three girls, saying that Mary said, What happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Norma then described how Mary placed her hands around the neck of these girls and began to squeeze, with one of the little girls, Pauline, starting to go purple in the attack. She would then do the same to a girl named Susan. I'm unsure if the third girl was attacked or not, but due to the age of Mary and Norma, they were simply given a warning by the authorities and no further action was taken. And I mean, I get that. Kids play rough sometimes and trying to scare them straight with an official warning is probably enough for most kids, but if that was the case for Mary, I wouldn't really be telling you this story, would I? Remember when I said escalation earlier? Here's the next level up. For context, Newcastle upon Tyne in the 60s got a huge urban renewal project. A lot of the city had been living in Victorian era slums, and the project set out to demolish all of the houses and replace them with more modern houses and flats. Why is this important now? Well, local children will often play around those derelict houses and rubble strewn land. One such area was a big piece of waste ground close to the railway line, which local children knew as Tin Lizzie. This will become important to all later. On the 25th of May 1968, one day before her 11th birthday, Mary strangled four-year-old Martin Brown, alone, in the upstairs bedroom of a derelict house. The body of Martin was discovered at 3.30pm by three other children. Laying on his back, his arms stretched out above his head, with specks of blood and foam surrounding his mouth. Other than that, there were no signs of violence visible on his body. A local workman named John Hall arrived soon after the discovery and attempted CPR, a fruitless effort, unfortunately. As he was performing the chest compressions on Martin, Paul saw two girls appear in the doorway of the bedroom, Mary and Norma. They were very quickly sent away, and you would think that this would be the time that they would run and hide after realising what Mary had done. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. Instead, the duo went and knocked on the door of Rita Finley, the aunt of Martin Brown. When the woman answered the door, Mary is believed to have said to her, One of your sisters, Benz, has just had an accident. I think it's martin but we can't tell because there's blood all over him even for being one day shy of 11 years old that is some extremely psychopathic behavior the next day a post-mortem was carried out and due to lack of any signs of violence on the body of martin the doctor wasn't able to determine the cause of death but was able to rule out the original police theory of poisoning an inquest into the death returned an open verdict Meaning that the jury all agree that the death is suspicious, but cannot arrive at any other verdicts that are open to them. On the same day of the post-mortem, Mary’s 11th birthday, Mary and Norma broke into a nursery and vandalized it. so much for a little tea party. The day after, on May the 27th, staff of the nursery discovered the vandalism and immediately contacted the police. Upon investigating the scene, they discovered four separate notes, all claiming responsibility for the murder of Martin Brown. The grammar in these notes is all over the place, but this is the gist of them. I murder so that I may come back. We did murder Martine Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Futch off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny and F. That's the homophobic F slur, so that will not be mentioned. You are mice. Why? Because we murdered Martine. Go, Brown. You bet, look out there murders about by Fanny and old you screws. What kind of school did these two (laughs) go to? The police collected these notes and simply said that they were just a childish prank. If the police had taken these a little bit more seriously, then what happened next may not have happened. Two days after Mary's birthday on May 29th, just before the funeral of Martin, both Mary and Norma decided to play a game. In it, they called upon the house of Martin's mother June, asking if they could see Martin. June obviously informed them that they couldn't because Martin was deceased. To this, Mary's reporter said, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. It continues downhill from here too, as two months later, on the afternoon of the 31st of July, 1968, another young boy, this time three years old, would be last seen by his parents playing on the street outside his own house. Brian Howe, was playing out with one of his siblings as well as a family dog, Anne-Mary and Norma. Brian's concerned parents and relatives began searching the streets looking for Brian later in the afternoon, when they discovered that he was missing. It wasn't until ten past eleven at night that a search party found the lifeless body of Brian in between two big blocks of concrete on the Tin Lizzy Wasteland. The first responding officer at the scene noted that there had been a very deliberate attempt to conceal the body of Brian with clumps of grass and weeds, but the attempt was a feeble one. Inspection of the body showed that the lips of Brian had cyanosis, which is a bluish discoloration of the skin due to a lack of oxygen saturation, cuts and bruises evident on his neck and a pair of broken scissors lying close by his feet. The coroner would give this report and it was damning. Cause of death? Strangulation. The body had been dead for seven and a half hours before discovery. One hand had been wrapped around the deceased's neck while the other squeezed his nostrils shut puncture wounds were dotted around the child's legs prior to death. Parts of his hair had been cut from his head. His genitals had been partially mutilated. There was an attempt to carve the letter M into his stomach. The coroner concluded that the relatively small amount of force used to carry out the murder of the child meant that the murderer was another child. As you can imagine, a large-scale manhunt started up with over 100 detectives from Northumberland being assigned to the investigation and questioned over 1,200 children as to where they were at the time of the murder. Two such questionees were Mary and Norma, witnesses to place a duo with Brian on the day of his death. So the police went and questioned them. When they spoke to them, they gave contradictory statements. However, they both freely admitted to have played with Brian on the day of his death, but denied even having seen him after lunchtime. The next day, they were questioned further and Mary said that she remembered seeing an 8-year-old local boy, who had also been playing with Brian on July 31st, stating that she had seen him hitting the child. But it's what she said next that was Mary's downfall. Mary said that she had seen the local boy covered in grass and weeds and that he was holding some scissors, going as far as say, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them. One leg was broken or bent. DCI James Dobson hears about this and immediately thought Mary's statements were self-incriminating and this convinced him that Mary was the actual killer. Why? Because police were the only ones to know about the broken scissors found at the crime scene. The local boy that Mary tried to blame was quickly questioned after what Mary said, however was dismissed after a small amount of questioning as it was found that he had been in Newcastle International Airport on July 31st, with many witnesses able to corroborate this. So what was Mary to do now? Well, that all came down to Norma. Her parents contacted the police and said that Norma wanted to confess what she knew about the death of Brian Howe. DCI Dobson went to Norma's house, officially cautioned her and then asked Norma what she knew. Norma told Dobson that Mary took her to the tin Lizzie and showed her the body of Brian before she began demonstrating how she had killed him. She said that she enjoyed doing it and described how she made cut marks into his skin on his stomach with a razor blade, which she hid at the crime scene as well as the broken scissors. Norma took the police to the crime scene and found the hidden razor blade. Norma had even drawn a picture of where the marks that had been made with the razor were on Brian's torso and it was a direct match to those that the coroner had described. The police soon after went to confront Mary and she took on a very defensive approach upon questioning, saying you're trying to brainwash me, I will get a solicitor to get me out of this." Norma would finally make a full statement and admitted to being present while Mary strangled Brian, saying that they were alone on the tin lizzie before Mary, seemed to go all funny, pushing the boys under the grass, strangling them and told Norma to take over because her hands were getting thick, whatever that means, thick of blood, mud, swollen, tired, who knows. Whatever it meant, it made Norma run from the scene, leaving Brian at the mercy of Mary. The final straw for Mary was when forensic exams showed the clothing owned by both Mary and Norma matched fibres that had been found on Brian's body, matching a woolen dress owned by Mary and a maroon skirt owned by Norma. Brian Howe was buried on the 7th of August and when DCI Dobson watched as Brian's coffin was brought out from his home at the beginning of the service, DCI Dobson witnessed Mary Bell stand outside the home laughing and rubbing her hands together. Later, he stated, I thought, my god, I've got to bring her in, she'll do another one. Mary and Norma were arrested after the funeral, with the duo having very different reactions to this. Norma burst into tears and Mary simply said, It's alright by me. Mary then attempted to pin the crimes on Norma, having prepared a written statement saying that she had been there while Norma killed Brian the exact opposite of what actually happened. She also confessed to the nursery break-in and copped to the handwritten notes that had been left inside. A psychological evaluation stated that Norma was intellectually slow and very submissive, showing her emotions easily but stated that Mary was smarter, more cunning and prone to sudden mood swings. Four psychiatrists concluded that Mary suffered from psychopathic personality disorder. At the trial, both girls would enter a plea of not guilty and, against the defense's protest, The judge waived the defendant's right to anonymity, allowing the media to publicise their names, ages, and photos of the girls. On day five of the trial, Norma testified in her own defence, denying being culpable in the actual murders of Brian and Martin. While not being directly involved, Norma did admit to knowing about Myrie's fascination with violence in her past attacks on children, and they had discussed attacking and killing both male and female children. Upon the conclusion of Norma's testimony, Mary's began and in it she denied all of Norma's accusations insisting that it was the other way around that she had watched Norma kill the children. Mary even started adding a lot of detail upon the crimes on Norma stating that Norma had told Brian to lie down if he wanted some sweets before strangling him with her bare hands as Mary attempted but failed in preventing the attack. She then went as far as to say her fingertips and nails were going white in reference to the level of the force that Norma was using to end the life of this child. Mary would concede that she failed to inform the authorities of what Norma had done out of fear and loyalty, but this would soon be flipped on its head. Catherine, not Mary's aunt but the mother of Norma, testified that before the murder of Brian there had been another strangulation attempt. Yes, that's right. Norma was the younger sister of Susan whom Mary had attempted to strangle months previously and that Mary only stopped when Catherine's husband had punched Mary in the shoulder. During the closing arguments, the counsel for Norma addressed the jury and said that they should dispel the idea that both girls should pay for the actions of just one. After all, there was no real evidence against Norma, with the only piece of evidence being that of Mary's accusations. The counsel for Mary talked about her background and family life and the fact that fantasy and reality blurred together in her mind. They also referenced that a doctor testified saying that Mary had a serious personality disorder which was both genetic and caused by environmental factors which impaired Mary's responsibility for her act. In closing for the prosecution side, it appeared that more emphasis was being placed on convicting Mary than Norma, going as far as to say that, despite Norma being two years and two months older than Mary, Mary was clearly smarter and had a more dominating personality which influenced Norma. On December 17, 1968, The jury retired and deliberated for 3 hours and 25 minutes before reaching a verdict. Norma and Mary were cleared of murder. However, Mary was convicted of manslaughter for both Martin Brown and Brian Howe. Norma was acquitted of all charges. In response, Norma clapped her hands in excitement and Mary burst into tears. Judge Ralph Cusack when passing sentence said, Mary was a dangerous individual and that Mary posed a very grave risk to other children and that Steps must be taken to protect the public from her. Mary was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which is basically an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. Mary would stay in prison for almost 11 years before being released in May of 1980, despite having broken out of jail three years prior. When she escaped, her punishment was merely a loss of prison privileges for 28 days. Upon release, Mary was granted anonymity, including a new name, And was therefore allowed to start a new life somewhere else in the country under an assumed identity. Life would go on to be normal for Mary, even giving birth to a baby four years after release. However, in 1998, reporters would learn of the new location of Mary Bell, which was a resort town in southern England. Mary and her daughter had been living there for 18 months and due to the media being its usual bloodthirsty self, Mary and her 14-year-old daughter were forced to leave their home and were driven to a safe house by undercover police. They would then be relocated to somewhere else in the United Kingdom. When Mary was given an assumed identity, so was her daughter upon birth. However, this would only last till her daughter turned 18. Therefore, Mary went to the High Court in May 2003 and, on the 21st of May 2003, Mary won the right to have both her own and her daughter's anonymity granted for life. This would also be granted to Belle's granddaughter in January 2009. What of Mary Bell now? Well, her current whereabouts are unknown and she remains protected under the 2003 High Court ruling. We will probably never hear from the real Mary Bell again. In 1998, an author named Gitta Sarani collaborated with Mary to release a book entitled Cries Unheard – The Story of Mary Bell. It goes into Mary's life before and after her crimes it's pretty messed up in all honesty. According to Gitter Mary does not claim to have been wrongly convicted of manslaughter all these years ago. In fact, she even goes on to say that the abuse she suffered as a child is no excuse for her to strangle two little boys to death. And that was the story of Mary Bell.
0: This episode of Comfort and Death and Darkness was researched, recorded, and produced entirely by me, Jake Gray. The best friend this episode was Charlie Fisher. You can find the show on every podcast service on the internet, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts, to search for Comfort and Death and Darkness. You can keep up to date with everything from the show by following the show on Twitter at Comfort and Death and on Instagram at Comfort and Death and Darkness. Links will be in the notes for this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss what happens next. And until next time, stay safe out there, because the shadows have the best stories.